<laughs> I think some more people are still coming in. I was in uh, Tyler, Texas a couple years ago, and Dave was talking, and uh, the first thing that Dave said is, you know, there comes a time in your career when your headshot no longer looks like what you look like. So I don't know if you guys have anything with you that shows you the picture faces of the people who are talking. That is, in fact, me. Uh, but we're going to get a, a, new, uh, a new headshot. All right, so I asked you before, I want you, to, I want you to start thinking, what is a piece of art or performance or movie or album that you have been transfixed transfixed by. Something maybe you went and you, you went on Wikipedia, you, you went down all the rabbit holes trying to figure out uh, why does this movie or song or book resonate with me so much? Can I get some? Paul McCartney Ram. Paul McCartney Ram. The second. Second album. Nice, nice. What else do we have? Kanye's uh, uh, Jesus is King. And really? Really? Yeah. Now this is interesting. You're Ryan, right? Yeah. Yeah, you went to Concordia years yeah. ago, where I used to teach years okay. ago. That interesting. Kanye's Jesus is King. And it's made me obsessive. Like really. I, I watched the documentary on Netflix about him called Genius. Yeah, he seems not. In, I don't. He's a I, very strange. Guy. Yeah. All right. Write these down. It's really profound. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Kanye, Jesus is King. What else? Something that you became obsessed with. Something that you had on a loop. Yeah, don't, don't judge me for contemporary Christian. Oh, I don't music, judge but, anybody uh, for anything. <laughs> Sarah Reeves, a uh, song called Nowhere. Sarah Reeves, yeah. song Nowhere. Uh, there's a performance I wrote with David Crowder, but I, I listen to that on loop for maybe like an entire day. Yeah, and I wonder sometimes if this is just me, but obviously we're in the same boat. Yeah, you guys do this? You repeat something over and over? Why do, we, why do we do that? I, I unfortunately don't have the answer to that. That's not where my talk is going. Uh, but it is something that's, that's fascinated me. As a, as a younger man, I can think of the first album that really did this uh, was the, the Pixies' Doolittle, if you're familiar with that, 1988. Uh, just an, an amazing album. And later, it was uh, Yola Tango's I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One, which just is an album I'd listen to over and over and over. And then I was thinking about movies. I saw Home Alone at least 10 times at the Woodbridge Theaters uh, in 1990. I could not get enough of Home Alone. And then just up the road, about seven years later, I saw Swingers, the movie Swingers. Every, every friend I had that hadn't seen it, I'd say, well, we have to go now. And then we'd go and we'd watch Swingers, and I knew all the lines. And, and there was something about the repetition, something about that. Well, all of this got me uh, thinking to a time or a film in my adult life that did this for me. I have a hard time thinking of a movie that has affected me more than 2006's uh, The Lives of Others. It was a film that won the uh, best foreign film. Uh, it's a movie I've seen dozens and dozens of times. I've watched the director commentary over and over, like I'm going to get something new this time. Uh, it's, it's become something of an obsessive film for me. And it's an interesting time just in terms of uh, German uh, movie making. In the 90s and early 2000s, Germany had begun to uh, look at its recent past. Not just World War II, but uh, the disunity and then the unification in 91. They have a word for it. Uh, if you know, Devenda, and you just say Devenda, and, and a German knows this is these years, 1989, 90. 91, and, and it was just in the early 2000s that Germans started to look at this time in their life, uh, not only through archives that had been opened, 
but through film. Uh, there's a, a movie called Goodbye Lenin, and it's in this same genre. It's, it's, it's funny, this one, uh, not like the lives of others. A movie about a woman who is so uh, in favor of East Germany, and then she has a stroke, and the wall comes down, and they tell her family. When she comes back from this stroke, if she realizes that the wall has come down, she'll have another stroke and die. So you need to pretend that the wall is still up. And the whole movie is about her kids trying to make the GDR still exist, even though uh, it's gone. Essentially, the story of the lives of others, which is doing a similar thing, but with a lot more drama, it, it follows the story of Wiesler, who's a Stasi agent posted to gather information on a playwright named Draymond and his girlfriend, Krista Maria. And Wiesler is set up uh, in a loft just above the couple's apartment, and he spends his days and his nights surveilling these people, these two people. And as he does his reconnaissance, trying to find what he can for the state to get them in trouble, to get them arrested, he starts to repent. And everything he started out trying to do ends up working against himself. And I'm not going to give away the rest of the movie, but, but this repentance, through looking at the lives of others, changed him. So here's where my theme, where my talk is going today. I'm going to leave a good bit of uh, autobiography out of this story. Uh, I have done some autobiography before. It was less pleasant than I thought. <laughs> past couple of years, has been a, it's been a torrid time. It's been a, a hellacious time. It was all topped off by a global pandemic. And I was doing a podcast for six years. It was called Virtue in the Wasteland. And all of a sudden, that just ended. And so I found myself scrambling, trying to do something, trying to find some kind of meaning in my life. And I found it through the lives of others, through uh, this podcast called the, the Christian History Almanac. If you're not familiar with it, think of it like uh, a daily seven-minute classroom. You don't have to show up every day. You don't have to have knowledge, requisite knowledge, to get the next show. Nothing sequential. Every morning I tell you a story about a person, a saint, a sinner, an idea, and then hopefully uh, why that matters. We just had our 1,000th episode. We were doing seven days a week. And after a thousand episodes, I slowed down to do five and then a weekend edition, but the weekend edition is like 30 minutes, and so it's more work than I thought. <laughs> but essentially, what I do is I tell stories. I live amongst calendars and encyclopedias and resources, and there's never not a time that I'm not thinking about some Franciscan nun or a second century martyr or a 20th century televangelist. I believe that part of the transformation I want to talk to you about today is that by, by doing something, and in my case, telling these stories over and over and over, it has started to deeply affect the way I look not only at the lives of others, but at my own life. Church history is our family tree. I've explained in the past that I'd like to think of myself and my job as a church historian and, and with this podcast as, as sort of like the friendly cousin at the family reunion. 
you know, the one that just kind of walks you around and says, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so, don't mention that to him. Uh, you know, the, the various things that are very helpful, they're not giving you the whole story, but they're giving you the little thumbnail sketches. They're saying, hey, think about that person, or here's how you remember how we're related uh, to that person. Now, I don't think I'm, I'm unique uh, in, in being perhaps, as a young man, and especially as a young historian, I was very enthusiastic as I was learning the ropes of my academic field. And, and may God bless you and keep you from some like me, some who are enthusiastic, some who want to take their job telling the story of people in the church, not, not, as, a, not as a gatekeeper, not as someone who's trying to keep people out or say, well, that one's okay, but Cousin Joe, just walk away. That's not our job if this is our collective history, our collective family tree. In my zeal as a church historian when I was younger, I saw myself as, as less a storyteller and more a gatekeeper. And don't get me wrong, my job is on a very basic level, uh, it's informational. Who is who and do they belong to that camp or, or that camp? But I, I found myself too often curating lists of good guys and bad guys. That's something that I need to, to repent from. Now, a quick caveat. Uh, I do get questions, well, was so-and-so a Christian? That seems important. Well, you're telling a story. It's church history. Is that person a Christian? And I will tell you that's something that makes me very, very uncomfortable. I don't know anyone's confession at any specific point in time. I could tell you what they wrote at one point or what they said at one point, but that's not that person today or, or later in life, and that's something that's really, really struck with me, stuck with me. Um, I, I wrote something of an autobiography in my 30s. Some of it, sure. Some of it, oh, goodness. <laughs> and then finally, I, I want to make sure as I'm talking about how we look and how we curate and how we look at the lives of others and how that changes us and how we look at people whose lives make us uncomfortable. Um, I don't think I need to give you a hot take on everything. I don't think church historians need to give you the hot take on every character and say, well, this is the way you think about so, uh, so on and, uh, someone and, and, and someone else. The characters that have touched me the most have been those people that uh, at first I thought were kind of ridiculous. Early on in my show, I created a silly category. Uh, they're known as the Dr. Gene Scott All-Stars. Does anyone know here, do, know Dr. Gene Scott? Thank you. you got, if you've seen Gene Scott, you can't unsee Gene Scott. In my mind, he's kind of like a... Well, another one, Wally George. You guys know Wally George? I'm going public television, 90s, Southern California, sorry. Uh, Gene Scott is this uh, Stanford-educated, self-proclaimed kind of prophet minister who through this really big church in L.A. would broadcast hours and hours of him preaching. And often he would preach from a sofa. And he'd sit on the sofa with two pairs of sun, or a pair of sunglasses and a pair of reading glasses, one on top of the other with a cigar in his mouth. And he'd get up to the whiteboard to decline some Greek verbs. And then he'd come back and he'd shout at you for a bit to give money. And then he'd be interspersed with like bluesy Christian rock and women riding horses. 
Anyone? Okay, all right. Bonkers. Thank you. Two of you. Really, really. And like all day long. I mean, it's on KBOC. This enthralled me. It enthralled me as a kid. It enthralls me today. I still will lie there. Oh, wow. Ooh, this is good. See, this is breakout. We can do this. Um, Grizzly Man, directed by Herzog. Herzog. Herzog did a movie called God's Angry Man about Gene Scott, and you can find it on YouTube. So it's an obscure movie. You can't, you can't find that movie in the, in the other places. Dr. Gene Scott was hilarious. Uh, later learned maybe a little blasphemous. Uh, but, but nonetheless, there was something engaging, something charismatic about him. And I stand by the designation on my show of the Dr. Gene Scott All-Stars because they're a little silly, because they're a little eccentric. But there was something happening with Gene Scott and with these other characters that started to... to to ask me questions I didn't think they could ask me because they're, after all, silly. What could I learn from someone like that? So that's where we're headed. I come from the grace alone tradition, but it seems there are, are times when I've tended to laugh at those who must have a grace deficiency. It's hard work to break that habit. And I found there's a certain, a certain category of people that bother me the most. So I'm gonna give you the list of the kinds of people that bother me the most. Is this very sanctified? Uh, let's go, the celebrity pastor. The eccentric visionary. The politically ambiguous. The utopian. And there's a whole nother category for missionaries and evangelists who I love can do very good work and do very bad work. These are the characters of people that I just, they tend to rub me the wrong way. And as I was saying these, I heard some, oh yeah, amen. Um, it would be not sanctified to, to actually list some of these characters, but do that in your head. Who are some of these people? Who's the celebrity pastor? Who's the eccentric visionary? Who's the utopian. Well, it just so happens that this weekend edition, what we do on the Christian History Almanac now once a week, uh, on the weekends, 30 minutes, uh, is I, I take a character and I dig deep into them. And, and while the show is only 30 minutes, the, the digging deep is, is, is weeks long. I, I get to kind of figure out, how do I deal with this person? So what I did is I took these kinds of people I don't like, and I started looking at them. Now, some of them, I started looking at them years ago. Maybe like Sister Amy Semple McPherson. I was Wiesler. I was doing reconnaissance. I was going to find out everything that's wrong with those people so I could tell these people, right? That was my job. <laughs> but as I was looking at the story of Sister Amy or Lonnie Frisbee or, or Rick Warren, there's a story, it started to change me. The story of Sister Amy Semple McPherson is fascinating. She's Canadian. She's born in 1880. Uh, her father is an itinerant pastor. Her mother is a runaway. Uh, she ends up coming down with her mother uh, to uh, the United States, meets Robert Semple, this Irish minister. And the two of them decide they're going to be missionaries, and so they take off for China. 
And there, Robert Simple dies, leaving a pregnant sister, Amy. This is, you know, the, the early 20th century. She comes back from China, pregnant. She meets uh, Harold McPherson, another, wait for it, itinerant pastor. And she starts traveling around the United States, ultimately in 1921, coming to the Angelus Temple uh, in Los Angeles. And here she would become one of the biggest celebrities in the 1920s in Los Angeles, which means she is one of the biggest celebrities in the world. There are few people, people bigger than Sister Amy Semple McPherson. And then in 1926, she disappeared. They said that when, when she disappeared and they, she was out swimming and, and she, maybe she drowned, maybe she was kidnapped, they said that the, the public uh, outpouring, the grief for Sister Amy, this kind of eccentric, twice-married Los Angeles preacher, was bigger than anything there had been since Abraham Lincoln. Now, now friends, Lincoln is assassinated, of course, in the 1860s. We have another assassinated president. McKinley is assassinated. But no, this, Sister Amy's a bigger <laughs> deal than that. She is gigantic. And then what happens? If you know the story, scandal. She shows up in the small border town of Aqua Prieta. She says she's been kidnapped by, by Jake and Mexicali Rose. She's got a story. She was able to free herself with the, the edge of a tin can. She's able to cut through her, her ropes and then walk miles across the desert. The problem is when they found her, she had not been walking miles through the desert. I mean, she just didn't look like any of this uh, actually took place. And she stuck to her story, and her story was flimsy, and the DA came after her. And it was an, an eager DA, and he kept coming after her, and so she kept fighting back, and the story of Sister Amy became this silly lady who faked a kidnapping. She would go on to do some incredible things, and on, on the show I talk about what she did during the wars, and, and how she, she dies of an overdose, but it doesn't seem to be at all uh, a suicide she was addicted to celebrity in a way that just wouldn't let her go. She couldn't not clap back at the DA. She couldn't not go on the radio when it was offered to her. I live in a, a town called Lake Forest, California. And if you know Lake Forest, California, you might know it for one of the, the biggest churches uh, in America. It's where Saddleback Church started. So on another weekend edition, I thought, Saddleback, they've been like the bad guys in some ways in my 20 years of, of being a Christian. They're close, but they're not like me. They're big and successful. There must, there's gotta be something up. So I thought, well, this is the fun part about being a church historian and doing the work for the church and, and digging deep into what's happening here. The story of Rick Warren and Saddleback Church is fascinating. And partly it's so fascinating because I can't find controversies. I mean, I can find things where I disagree with the way he'll talk about certain social issues. I'm certain, I mean, I'm not a worshiping member at that church. But holy cow, that guy was able to do some gigantic things. His reverse tithing, I know, uh, well, we don't need to get into the, the, the sort of economics of it, but the way he, he's giving all of his money back, the way he's sort of actively trying to break down this giant church into smaller little churches, after reading and going to the campus and, and doing everything I could for the show, I thought, dang it. There goes another enemy. 
George Price is from New York. I'm telling you these stories. One is say, hey, listen to the Christian History Almanac Weekend Edition. You can hear the whole stories. But, but let me reflect on some of these because re these are the stories that have stuck with me for so long. George Price is from New York, from right here, right in Manhattan, 1922. He's born. His parents are on Broadway. His mom's a singer. His dad invents some kind of stage light that makes them all kinds of wealthy. Uh, he ends up going to, to uh, school. Is it studies? Uh, where, where does he go? Yeah, Stuyvesant. Ends up going to the University of Chicago. Uh, he's working on his PhD in chemistry, and unbeknownst to him, he's working on the Manhattan Project. His supervisor was having him build an atomic bomb. That messes with him a little bit. He ends up going to work with Bell Labs. And if you know anything about Bell Labs in the 50s and the 60s, they were creating things that killed people. Not a Christian man himself, he starts to think through the problem of altruism. If everything I think is actually true, then why would anyone be, you know, evolutionary in the sense, then why would anyone be nice to anyone? Why do some families work and some families don't work at all? He became obsessed with this question. His family was a wreck. He ends up getting botched a botched surgery and goes to England where he's this sort of mad scientist without a job working through altruism and, and how do you work with Darwinian uh, evolutionary biology and altruism and he comes up with what today we call Price's Law. Let me read this quote here from a historian of, of science. The Price equation is the closest thing biology has to E equals MC squared. It's a fundamental expression of natural selection that can be used to clarify concepts separate different components of selection, and compare more specific mathematical modes of evolution. He figured out the altruism problem on paper, but in his own life, it didn't connect. He became a Christian. He became an eccentric Christian at that. He gave away everything he had. Uh, to, to the extent that it, was, that it was bad for his health. He stopped taking his medications, and he eventually takes his own life. I don't like his theology. I don't like his decisions. And I'm really, really drawn to characters like George Price. The politically ambiguous... William Jennings Bryan, you might know the name, William Jennings Bryan from Inherit the Wind. He's the sort of buffoon arguing in the courthouse for, um, uh, whoa, whoa. Uh, right. I know, that's what it was. William Jennings Bryan, uh, we, we recognize you, we thank you. For, uh, sorry you lost three times. Uh, why'd you run three times, buddy? All right, so uh, there we go. So you've got... Um, William Jennings Bryan, and he is such a, a fascinating, fascinating guy. Are we good? Yeah. Still going. Still going. One of only two men to run on a national presidential ticket three times, lose all three times. His friends across the political spectrum uh, from the 1860s to the 1920s is bafflingly, bafflingly regional. He is a fundamentalist. fundamentalist. He's also friends with Russian anarchist and author Leo Tolstoy. He is all over the place. 
And as you would imagine, someone in the early 20th century has some abhorrent views on, on, on race, on gender, on things that you would not say today or he'd have a publicist. Or you, just, you wouldn't. That's not the context. So how do I deal with that? One of the easiest things you can do as a historian is if you want to knock some people down, just do it. Easy. People in the past, one, they're dead. <laughs> um, but yeah, they hold retrograde, old-timey ideas. Ha, ha, ha. Because they lived in the old times. Now, I'm not saying we, we say they get a pass, but this is the kind of hard work that we have to do. Uh, the title of my talk is Loving Our Dead Neighbors. And the theme is... Hope for a weary world. And, and the reason I came to this through that topic of hope for a weary world is because I, I feel the weariness. I think we all feel the weariness. And I'm weary. I'm tired of being angry at people. I've been angry at people for too long. Professionally, personally. So how does the gospel, how does this good news, how does our collective Christian past help us, help me, I should, it's me, Help me deal with this. William Jennings Bryan helps me. Buffoon, who I also can learn something from. Sister Amy. And then Lonnie Frisbee. My work with Lonnie Frisbee is not done. I can promise you, you that much. She's probably the most fascinating character uh, in, in my reading of modern church history. Give you just the short version. He was born in Santa Ana, California, that's Orange County, in 1949. And uh, non-Christian parents, and he grows up in, in sort of the Orange County of the 1950s and 60s and gets involved in, in Laguna art scene and is with Timothy Leary uh, in Laguna Beach uh, during that time taking LSD. He's also uh, a dancer on Casey Kasem's Shebang. Uh, he's, he's, he's very charismatic, very good-looking fellow, and, and he starts going out into the desert, and he's experimenting with LSD and the like, and then it's there amidst all the LSD that he finds Jesus, which is just a wild story. So he goes up to the Haight-Ashbury, this is the late 60s, and he meets some people who also like uh, LSD and, and Jesus. <laughs> huh, don't judging. I, don't we all? I, I, I'm just going to say, I, I, I don't want to shame it, but it just, it's an interesting thing. And so he meets these people, and they have a commune, and he becomes the most zealous Christian ever. And so he goes from uh, Northern California to Southern California, and he hitchhikes, because it's the 60s and the 70s, and when he hitchhikes, he says, um, I'm going to hitchhike to tell them about Jesus. Well, he's in Costa Mesa, California, and he gets picked up, and uh, the guy says, uh, hey, do you know Jesus? Do you know about Jesus? And Lonnie says, no, 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 that's my job. I tell you about Jesus. And the guy said, no, no, this is what I do. I pick up guys to tell them about Jesus. Are you telling me you're a hippie and you love Jesus? And Lonnie says, yeah. So this guy says, well, my, uh, my girlfriend's dad is a pastor, and he wants to meet a hippie. That would be Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel. Lonnie Frisbee would become the sort of, the meteoric, the, the most fascinating, interesting guy in Calvary Chapel in the 70s. Then another guy comes along called John Wimber, and John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement, and then Wimber and Frisbee are going to come together. And ultimately, um, if you know the story, it ends tragically. 
If you, if you read Wimber's uh, autobiography, uh, he mentions Lonnie Frisbee one time as that young man. Uh, the funeral. Lonnie Frisbee, I should say, Lonnie Frisbee died in the, the 90s from AIDS. He had some kind of same-sex attraction, perhaps. He had some drug issues, uh, and that did not, that was not okay with the Calvary Chapel vineyard crowd. On the show, I, I tell my whole story uh, about how my own family actually goes into vineyard and, and Calvary Chapel uh, backgrounds, and, and um, to, to know so much about this church, but to not know about this one character, always kind of stung me. So the talk, the the, <laughs> the front of my talk is uh, loving our dead neighbors. There's a way in which, when I can have compassion, when I can tell the story of, with love, someone from our collective Christian past and do it with love, it changes me. I come to repent. There are a number of, of people who are not dead, who make up these people in my life, the eccentric visionary, the utopian, even a celebrity pastor. And if I can have uh, compassion and love for the dead first, it will help awaken me, hopefully, uh, to loving the living. I still have a problem with these characters. I still have a question about Christian celebrity. I actually want to break it open to some questions in, in just a few minutes, but I want to take you back first to June 8th, 2018. June 8th, 2018. I woke up that morning to the news that Anthony Bourdain had taken his own life. It had been only less than a year since I was in a mental institution for suicidal ideations of my own. And that one hit really, really hard. Now that weekend, the weekend of June 8th, 2018, my friends, the Clemberas, were coming to town from Texas. And I wanted to see them, and depression be damned, I was going to muster up all the act-like-a-real-person energy I could, because it just so happens a friend of ours was also in town. Dave Zoll. Dave Zoll was speaking in Costa Mesa, California, home of Lonnie Frisbee. Dave's talk was the power and significance in the overlooked. And because of the news of the day, he started riffing on Bourdain. And Dave said something along the lines of, perhaps humans weren't meant to be famous. Or some such version of that statement that has been ringing in my head ever since. Do I blame Sister Amy for her story about Jake and Mexicali Rose? Of course. Does Rick Warren have a bit of an ego? Sure. But this was Dave's point to me. I can blame them for what went wrong. But if I'm telling their story, especially in public settings, especially in the service of Christians and for the church, 
Perhaps if these people have become celebrities, either willingly or unwillingly, they've taken on a task that is too heavy for anyone to bear. It's camel through the needle work. Your maneuvering and your logic and your accounting just won't work. In a weary world, when I find myself getting angry with people more often than I should, when I found that the lives of others brings me to repentance, I find mercy in not needing to be my brother or sister's keeper. I don't need to justify themselves, justify them in the same way that I don't have to justify myself. And there is great peace here.